0: Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotomus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to this latest episode of Anthropotamus. We're here with Kendra Isabel from the University of Nevada, Reno. We'll be discussing her research on skeletal stress and the relationship with uh, systematic racism, as well as her work she did at the Hammond Todd Collection. So thank you, Kendra, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So before we get started into your research, tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Maybe some work, some of your master's work, and how you ended up in Reno and in uh, anthropology in general. Really, it's an anthropology <laughs> podcast. Let's <laughs> let's discuss your love of anthropology. Okay. Um. So for starters, um, I
2: am originally from Southern California. So I started at a community college, um, and my original goal was to go to medical school. I wanted to uh, become a doctor, and I thought that there was only one way of going about that. Um, It wasn't until I kind of delved deeper into the whole academic sphere that I found out that there are Roads, less travel to get to medical school. So I had done a scholarship program when I was at UC, when I was in Chafee at Community College and um, I went to UCLA and they were able to like review my transcripts and things like that. And they suggested that perhaps I should major in biological anthropology. Um, And I was like, okay, that's very interesting, because originally I was like a biochem major, um, but the classes were absolutely impossible to get into. So I went back, I changed my major to biological anthropology, um, and it really kind of switched my entire academic trajectory. And I didn't know it at the time. Um, So I remember taking cultural anthropology. I really liked it. I took biological anthropology. I really enjoyed it. And then I became a research assistant. So when I was at Chafee College, I was actually studying bonobo bones, um, and I was looking at the vertebrae, and I was working under Dr. Mark Meyer, and I really enjoyed the aspect of doing research. I had never done it before, and it was very interesting. So after some trial and error, I was able to go to UCR um, and pursue my Bachelor's of Science in Anthropology, where I became a research assistant again and it was in that time where i was like wow i really like research like this is this is a lot of fun i took a class uh with dr sarah becker and at the time i didn't know that she was a bioarchaeologist i'd never heard of bioarchaeology didn't know what it was and i remember she assigned us a semester project we had to pick a pathogen off of a list And she said, write about it. And I'm not used to having such ambiguous and vague instructions. So I struggled with how to like narrow myself down. So I went to her office and I was like, Dr. Becker, I'm really struggling with like how to do this. I don't know where to start. There's so much information. And I had picked tuberculosis, um, which was something that I didn't know anything about. And she looked at me and she said, look at how it impacts the bones. I said, okay. And I did just that. And this is where I found out about skeletal manifestations of pathogens, not knowing that that was paleopathology at the time. And I loved it. And I realized when I was doing my outside research and when I was doing research for this class, that I loved research. And I realized that I didn't want to go to medical school anymore and that I wanted to pursue. Research further in any capacity. Um, And it was jarring at first because I'm a first generation college student. I come from a town where, or a city but I'm very well connected with like my community after like working there and growing up there for 20 years. And everyone knew me as, you know, Kendra, the girl who wants to go to medical school. And that's what my parents knew. And so I was a little scared to go to my mom and be like, mom, I don't think I want to go to medical school. I I don't think I want to like pursue research. Um, But she was, she was like, you've already made me proud. So she's like, I trust that, you know what you're doing. You're okay. Um, I originally thought that I wanted to work in industry. When I finished my bachelor's degree at UCR, I got a job at a business management consulting firm um, as a research analyst and database manager, and I liked the research aspect of it, but I wasn't really a fan of the environment, so I applied um, to California State University Northridge's master's program in anthropology, um, and I originally went there to work with Dr. Chinsen Liu, who is a bioarchaeologist. I took the bioarchaeology seminar my first semester there, and I absolutely loved it. And it was in that semester where I realized that bioarchaeology was my thing. I was like, that's what I've been doing this whole time. It's like looking at how historical populations and their skeletons have reacted to these environmental factors and different environmental stressors and skeletal manifestations of pathogens. And I loved it. I did my master's thesis research, which was um, a meta-analysis of existing literature on the bioarchaeology and paleopathology of enslavement in the United States, and in other countries. So basically what I did was I did an overhaul of all of the existing literature. I looked at the pathological conditions that were very common. I recreated the geographical locations based on where the skeletons were found, Um, and I realized that it mirrored exactly the map of the transatlantic slave trade, which was really great. I created an entire database of all of this literature that houses all this information. So it looks like the methods that were employed by the uh, authors. It looked at the pathological conditions, it looked at the dental conditions, it looked at aspects of wear, it looked at geographical locations, and I was able to discern that there was a lot of stuff that has been done, um, but there's also a lot of things that still need to continue to be done. For example, um, millions of enslaved individuals were transported uh, to the United States and to other countries like South America, but my research only yielded a total of about 1,500 individuals um, that have been uncovered due to the aspect of enslavement. And so with that being said, that's a drop in the bucket in comparison. So my question, my bigger questions are like, Where's the rest of these individuals? What happened to them? They, I, I know that they didn't disappear. And with the continuous discovery of these unmarked graves and unmarked cemeteries under you know, infrastructure, um, it really speaks to the magnitude of how severe this is. So that was essentially what my, di- my master's thesis research covered. And then I came to the University of Nevada Reno for one, for two reasons. But the biggest reason is because um, UC schools in California, they do not accept your terminal master's degree. And I would have had to start grad school over as if I never went. And I could not afford to do that. I told myself that if I had to start grad school over, I wasn't gonna go. Um, and the universities, UNLV and University of Nevada, Reno, they accept your terminal master's degree and you can get on the PhD track so i was able to come to this university transfer in i think 24 of my master's credits towards my phd program which knocked out about almost 2 years of academic work that i would not i don't have to do here um so that was one of the reasons the other reason is it's geographically close to california and i can still see my family in reasonable time it's like a 7 hour drive um which is not bad for me considering i have braved la traffic <laughs> So (laughs) I'm like, I'm super, super comfortable with long drives. Um, And so now here I look at skeletal manifestations of societal inequities that occurred during the Jim Crow era. Um, I was given an opportunity to study the skeletal collection at Hammond Todd. And that's where I collected the data that facilitated my pilot study and the slew of presentations that um, Ashley is referring to. (laughs) and so um yeah so that's that's what I'm doing now and I'm excited to tell you guys about it
1: (laughs) something I found interesting um you know what because and I think we discussed this with Marin in our last episode but before we start talking about this can you explain to our listeners what um LEH is um, so that when we discuss it, people know what we're discussing. <laughs> uh,
2: yes. Um. So LEH stands for linear enamel hypoplasia. Um. So it's a form of enamel hypoplastic defects. Uh, this one is different than just regular enamel hypoplastic defects because these are indicators of stress, right? So these are non-specific indicators of stress, meaning. There is no one reason why, like no one insult or environmental stress that we know what could have caused this. So there's a million different reasons that a person could manifest a linear enamel hypoplasia. It can be environmental insults, nutritional deprivation, some sort of um, environmental stress that these, are, these individuals are enduring. The other thing is that these things can happen while the child is in utero, or during early stages of development. And if a person was really interested in trying to discern exactly when that happened, they would be able to look at the specific tooth and that tooth will tell them when this happened. Did it happen while they were in utero or did it happen during early childhood development or during like infancy? Um, And so basically what happens is your body is going to do whatever it can to survive. And in that case, it is going to compensate for some sort of environmental insult or nutritional deprivation or some sort of stress by reducing the amount of enamel that is laid during childhood development. So your enamel is laid linearly. And so for every time you see a depression, that is an indicator of stress. The wider the band, the longer the episode of stress. The more bands you see, that means that's the more episodes of stress that this person has survived through. And so I use those um, because I'm looking at a longitudinal I'm looking for longitudinal evidence of stress. Um, I use that for my early childhood development stress and that contributes to the answer of did this person have stress during their childhood and how does that stress impact the, the longevity of their life um, and their lifestyle and their susceptibility to diseases and things like that. Um, so that's what LEH is and what I use it for.
1: <laughs> so let's um uh... Um, Les, since your host, you have the posters up, correct? Yeah. Can you share this graph where it's like black individuals and white individuals? And all- So for those listening on the podcast, you won't be able to see this, but for people who are watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see these two graphs here. Um, so you have here uh, a graph for black individuals, white individuals, and you did a comparison of fract- uh, frequency of fractures and LEH. Um, what I found interesting was white individuals uh, had at a young age, had a much higher frequency of fractures, whereas black individuals had much more Ali age but less fractures. And I mean, a lot of your research is kind of, you know, taking these remains and giving back their identity. Right. Yeah. They're not just a number. To, they're just not they're not just numbered skeletons. These are mm-hmm. these were human beings. They had lives. Um, and it really makes me wonder. Not just the hardships people were under, you know, with the LEH and the stress they had through life, but also possibly um, cultural practices during early child development. What were these people doing? that their children at a young age had so many fractures. Like were you just leaving them on the bed and then not paying attention that they just kept rolling off? Like
2: <laughs> well, um actually so if I could explain this result. Mm-hmm. So um I actually I don't look at juvenile I look at I don't look at juvenile skeletons. The teeth tell me that these are indicators of childhood stress, but the individuals that I look at are adult individuals. Okay. I read um, the graph wrong. No, 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 you're totally fine. But here's the interesting aspect of it. And the, I think the core part of my research is the overarching historical analysis and taking into consideration those cultural and environmental variations that could potentially impact what it is that we see in the skeleton. So for example, um, let's take a step back and consider the population of Hammond Todd. So uh, these are individuals that are housed at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, um, and they were acquired in less than ideal ethical circumstances, let's just say that. So the curators of this collection, Carl Hammond and t Wingate Gate Todd, um, they collected these individuals who were of low socioeconomic status and were committed to some sort of uh, county or state facility. So these were mental hospitals, um, regular county hospitals, infirmaries, things like that. And basically what they did was in order to procure as many individuals as they had, because Hammond Todd has over 3,000 individuals, what they did was they ratified the legislation that required any state facility that had possession of unclaimed human remains to turn them over to Hammond and Todd immediately. Um, And basically what they did was once a person was admitted to one of these facilities, um, and they were deceased, um, they gave next of kin very small amounts of time to reclaim their remains, their loved one's remains, and it was at a cost. So if these are already low socioeconomic status individuals, and you're having the family pay to get their remains back, and then they have to pay to bury these individuals. In a lot of cases, they could not afford it. Many of these people didn't have family that could claim them, which is how these individuals got procured. So they're already living below the poverty level, like they're already struggling. So then when we look at the aspect of hypoplastic enamel defects, um, we take into consideration the cultural norms at that time. So even though everybody here is of low socioeconomic status, there are still individuals who are living with not only economic inequalities, but now racial and economic inequalities. So as you can see, the African-American individuals doubled in number of hypoplastic enamel defects in comparison to the white individuals, which is where you see these uh, cluster analyses that show that there is a stronger correlation between the presence of hypoplastic enamel defects and skeletal fractures from African-Americans versus white individuals. And part of that has to do with the fact that there were so few white individuals that had hypoplastic enamel defects. So when I say that we are taking into consideration these social factors that are impacting human biology, I look at the creation of the concept of race. And I look at that and I say, this is a label that was assigned to a person at birth right? This has no bearing on their biology or anything. This is a social construct. Race is a social construct. And you're letting this label affect your human biology, your human nature, your ultimate genetic composition, and how your body responds to stress. And you realize how arbitrary these labels are. And you think about how these individuals were received in society. So we look at the aspect of care and we look at how this arbitrary label, like what your social race is, something that is assigned to you, something that you know I myself as a Black person has absolutely no control over. And you look at how those who are in power and have control over these resources get to dictate who is worthy of care based on this social construct and this social label. And so that's where like the magnitude of this research comes in at. Um, But that is the reason why like the aspect of the hypoplastic enamel defects are important because these are all human beings, right? All human beings who are being labeled and categorized based on their outward phenotypic representation. And this is how those arbitrary labels impact their human biology.
1: Because I have a food, I have a thing for food. I mean, who doesn't have a thing for food? Yeah. Um, oh, man, I wish I could just like get the isotope analysis of like the teeth from the white and black individuals and see if there's like, I'm sure there is a differences Ooh. in diets and if, how yeah. likely it is that nutritional deficiency could have um, caused LEH Um
0: that would be interesting. You could narrow down what might have caused those instances of stress.
1: But I'm sure there's multiple uh, factors involved. Um yeah. And uh, did you do, I mean, I know you mentioned occupation in your poster, but did you do a comparison of occupation for each individual to, to possibly uh, explain uh, frequency of fractures?
2: No. And the reason why I didn't is because um, there are inconsistencies in the, num- the amount of information that is available for each individual. Mm-hmm. So to level the playing field for all the individuals, I can only use as far as hard data goes in terms of what my analyses will look like. Um, I can only use data that will be readily available for every single individual. And so uh, every single individual has an associated documentation in Hammond Todd as well as available death records through FamilySearch.org. Um, not everybody's information is available. So I don't know the occupation for probably at least 50% of the individuals. Um, I don't know you know, their geographical locations, like in terms of the, their addresses, some people had addresses, some people didn't, some people had next of kin, some people didn't. So because there was so much inconsistency, I didn't take that into consideration in terms of data analyses. However, it will be something that I may consider if I identify trends when I'm doing my data analyses and like interpretation, like when when I'm doing my interpretation. So like in the discussion section, I'll go, you know, here are some things that could have happened, but the approach for my research and the novelty of my research is letting the skeleton speak for themselves. And no matter what their occupation was and no matter, you know, what their social status was, a fracture is a fracture, is a fracture, is a fracture. And the misalignment tells you what that healing process was for that fracture. And that's like the core aspect of it is like looking at the misalignment of the fractures and saying, this person didn't receive a lot of care. You know, um, this person wasn't given the opportunity to rest, to stabilize this fracture, to be able, for it to be able to heal properly. And then how does that, the overall experience impact the entire aspect of their livelihood? It's, kind of my approach
1: you <laughs> know totally get it yeah sorry i'm just processing
0: no, no you're good is there anything you guys want me to move to as far as the posters go
1: i mean i think a lot of it is uh skeletal remains so we can go ahead and stop sharing okay that since we've discussed is let me look at the other poster mm-hmm. uh yes we don't want to show the remains on that
0: okay because the long as long as we're sharing it it's just gonna keep that up on the screen and i don't want to yeah
1: you're good good uh les do you have any questions before we move forward
0: um being entirely honest uh because i didn't get the um get to look at the poster since last night this is you're, you're getting my live reaction right now. So <laughs> l- largely what I'm, uh, I'm just kind of like, okay, so I don't want to ask anything that's going to be like off the wall. Like, why did you even ask that? I'm just going to. No,
2: you can ask though. In. I mean, me personally, I am very transparent. And mm-hmm. this is if, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know about the whole podcast thing, right. but if this is a safe space for you to be like, what is going on? <laughs> 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 why, you know, <laughs>
1: why these groups of right. individuals yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. i'm just when we when i pulled the poster back up i just realized you have a fractured clavicle a healed fractured clavicle and i'm this is the first time i really looked at it and was like what the heck was going on that it healed like this and <laughs> it's basically mm-hmm. at a very it 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 did not heal straight it's almost in an l shape and yeah. um I mean, it just looks like this person just like hurt themselves and they just had to get back to work or or they just did not uh, Mm. stabilize That I don't even know how you would. Healed. So
2: clavicle, clavicle fractures are very common. And that is something that I learned having taken Dr. Palute's paleopathology course
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, is that clavicle fractures are very common. She told me, if I'm not mistaken, that she broke her own clavicle. And I was like, how did you do that? Like, what, what are you doing that, you, you know, mm-hmm. you break your clavicle? But like in terms of the fractures, so like things that I took into consideration are the significant misalignments as well as evidence of healing. So these fractures, they tell a story and the story is, is this person was injured in some way, shape, form or fashion. And like, if you're looking at the femur fracture, the mid shaft femur fracture of Mr. Johnson, take into consideration the impact that it takes to snap your femur in half like that. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we, we look at that we go, okay, this person was injured. We see that there is evidence of bone remodeling. So this was the the femurs attempt to realign the broken fractures, the fractured bone. Right? They're they're like, okay, we're trying. So you see evidence of the f- bone healing. So that tells you this person lived through this fracture, right? Then you look at the misalignment, and then what I did was I did clinical research to try to understand the proper way to heal a fracture. And what I found out was riveting. I was like, this is incredible. The number one symptom that needs to be addressed when trying to properly heal a fracture is actually pain management. It's not the cast, it's not the brace, it's none of those things. It is pain management because pain management reduces the likelihood that the individual will engage in movement when they're supposed to be resting and letting that bone restabilize. So now I take that bit of information and I look at these fractures and I go, this person was in excruciating pain. This person didn't, was unable to rest and relax and let this fracture heal. And even though for a lot of my research I don't take into consideration occupation for this particular poster, these were anomalous individuals that exhibited the most skeletal fractures and the most hypoplastic enamel defects. So I did a case study on these individuals. Mr. Johnson is an African-American laborer during Jim Crow era in Cleveland, Ohio. So I think about their experiences and I say, could this person who injured themselves walk up to their employer and say, I'm hurt. I can't do this job right now. And if such were the case, does this cause this man to lose his home, not feed his family? Does this one injury cause a downward spiral in their lives? Um, And so that is like what these fractures and the misalignments mean to me in the larger context of like telling their story because there's a reason why it's misaligned this isn't like happenstance and this isn't normal biology um and then i also take into consideration medical advancements at the time so for example uh, crutches didn't exist at this time the predecessor to the crutch is the walking stick which according to research didn't exist until 1917. Well, these individuals were born in the late 1800s and died between 1911 and 1930. So what I plan to do was look at, do multivariate analysis to try to determine the chronological, how the chronological appearance of these medical advancements would impact the skeletal fractures and misalignment that I see. So if this person did not have access to a walking stick, does that contribute to why their misalignment is so poor? Um, We take into consideration the advent of radiographs and x-rays. If x-rays don't exist until the 1930s in hospitals, this person died in 1926. Nobody was able to see how misaligned this fracture was. Does that impact why his fracture is so misaligned because when the person is alive there's still flesh and muscle around that where you can't see it so this person is probably limping and is probably complaining of excruciating pain but there's probably no significant difference in his physical appearance that would allow somebody to say this is a legitimate concern and you would need a radiograph to see how severe this is. So uh, the multivariate analysis is gonna be helpful in telling the chronological story of how these medical advancements play into their lived experiences. And then I'll also be using multivariate analysis to look at how variables such as race, sex and age impact the skeletal fracture, the prevalence, the healing, the misalignment, like all of those things, um, to be able to hopefully tell a more complex story of what their experiences were like at this time.
0: I'm glad you went into this because that was actually my, uh, the next question that I actually had was, have you done any research into the medical techniques and technology of the time? Uh, And do you have any data to kind of compare? what it would look like for somebody of a higher economical status who had an injury like this versus one of the people in your research group?
2: So, uh, no. One, uh, the... Medical technology at the time is more of a recent revelation. Um, and so this was like preliminary study. This was very naive, Kendra, not knowing anything, not not knowing the the magnitude and the depths of this and just really looking at like the skeleton, but then not realizing that Kendra, if you really want to tell the whole story, you have to understand. The whole story. Um, Also, there is an aspect of accessibility. So, we're not, we're never going to see the human skeletal remains of a wealthier individual of higher socioeconomic status and higher social status in the way that we will see these remains because these are lower um, socioeconomic individuals and those of lower social status. And so, I think that it's important to emphasize the fact that this is a very biased collection. In and of itself, how it was collected, um, and that it, it only represents a very small number of the population at this time and is not representative of the lot of it, of like how these people, like this isn't a unanimous experience for everybody. These are just these particular individuals who happen to fall into this category and end up in this, you know, skeletal collection. Um, but it would be very interesting to see. The comparative yeah. analysis of like in that time frame in that geographical location.
0: Yeah, that would be that would be super interesting. Just to kind of, uh, I mean, you can you can definitely see that there is there there was an issue there. The question is, um, and, and you know, it's I think it may be possible to find uh, manuals on um, uh, medical techniques of the time. So maybe somebody who was able to get um, more care from a higher more highly trained physician might have had something that would um, set the bone more properly or maybe not right so this is something I haven't researched either so I think it would be interesting to see that yeah
2: yeah but it also falls upon again who is worthy of receiving said care Mm -hmm. and Um, my research not only speaks to the historical experiences of like medical racism, as concerns about maternal health um, and societal inequities, but these are concerns that are still very prevalent today. And I take into consideration like contemporary concerns of medical racism and who is being deemed and worthy of care in society by those who are providing care. And there are many instances where, black women are not believed when they say they're in pain and you know black people are perceived to feel pain at a lesser percentage which if you did if you look at like the medical research there was a study that was done not too long ago where about 50 percent of the physicians in training thought that black people didn't feel pain and I was like who told you that? <laughs> and why would you think that that's a thing? Um, but it's it's very true. And so, you know, it would also, it, it starts with access and the limitations to access. And one of those limitations is, yes, your socioeconomic status, can you afford to go see a, a doctor? But then even for those who can't afford to go see a doctor, if you uh, are a marginalized individual and you're not being seen by a, another minority physician. Are they going to believe that you are in pain? Are they going to care enough about your existence and and your health and well being um, to properly care for you? And it's this conundrum of like the theory and the research that I've done, where people's level of care stops where their political interests start it spans american history honestly
0: oh absolutely i was actually just <laughs> reading um uh what was it it was a, a book by truner um and it was about native american studies and, and such and, and you know it, it goes into detail on the disparity in care for um you know the native american groups throughout american history and it's exactly what you just said as the political interest creeps in, their level of care drops down and people sort of fall off the, the map there. But yeah, it, it seems like that's that's a really common uh, a really common instance of, of something. As soon as politics are involved and somebody who, you know, is perceived to be gain more equal care, that's when things start to you you just see that stone wall fall right into place and people just lock you out.
2: Yeah. And I find that like Within the context of my research, but then just in general, that is something that I absolutely find fascinating because it's it it's it has to be some sort of psychological conundrum that these people are battling mm. when they're like. I I want to provide care. I want to provide care, but my my political stance or my social status I feel is going to be threatened so much if this person receives this care and then it just it 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 ends. It ends. And mm-hmm. again, how do these arbitrary labels like your political affiliation impact human biology? because the only these these things that people associate themselves with are all made up. They they're all made up. The uh-huh. politicals, the socials, the labels, they're all made up. But what's not made up is the nature of human existence. And it is phenomenal to see the lengths with which people are willing to let other people endure suffering to pro- to protect their own political interests. Yeah. And I like for my research to kind of truly magnify these phenomenons and and let the reader and the scholars understand that while this might be centered in a historical collection in a very you know biased population and things like that the the meaning behind it and the, the the prevailing concerns they're still here today Mm -hmm. And they're, they're very, they're very prevalent. And, and I will say that racism, classism, and any other forms of marginalization, marginalization are pervasive. Like no matter how, (laughs) no matter how people try to get away from it or how much they say we have, you know, moved beyond this. It's like, no, you haven't.
0: Well, there's a (laughs) lot of propaganda, you know, Um, and and the more, the more you, um, the more you delve into the actual, you know, research of the situation when you actually start learning what has happened and what is happening and what all that means you start seeing the kind of cracks in the mask that we you know if you'll accept my metaphor there um you start seeing what's behind everything and well you realize okay so it is a problem right Mm -hmm. it's not just we're we're not just this amazing future futuristic society that is so far beyond everything that happened in the past no there's still there's historical hurt there right Mm -hmm. and and it's not just historical hurt but it's day-to-day problems that people you know are still going through Mm -hmm. yeah that um that are in you know a lot of ways just being hidden because it's it's easier to say you know that didn't happen than to address the problem right
2: yeah yeah it's very easy um and I know that one of the things for my research was giving a voice to the historically silenced, which is like what I presented on uh, at the three minute thesis competition. Um, and trying to approach this from an unbiased perspective as is as an as a scientist, as a biological anthropologist, and letting the skeletons speak for themselves. And, you know, there are so many people like you have said that will say, this didn't happen or one of the reasons like the catalyst for this research was because when I was doing my master's thesis research I found out about this thing called the slave narratives and these were supposed to be recounts of the everyday lives of enslaved individuals except the slave oh, narratives were being told by the former slave owners
0: uh-huh. so or that's... af
2: yeah or african-american people Who could read and write who were literate which is
0: it's an entirely different
2: yeah which is not representative of the day-to-day for a typical enslaved individual and all i kept thinking was
0: this is another
2: form well that and also it's this is another form of censorship this is another form of erasure if you really really want to know what these people's lives are like you have to hear it from them themselves like from the actual individual but who who's going to listen to those things and then i take into consideration historical texts and Is that bias? Is that interpreted in a certain way based on, you know, who the publisher is or who the writer is or whatever the case may be, which led me to this desire to want to tell their stories in some way, shape, form or fashion by just using the skeleton. So no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no matter where you stand on your socioeconomic spectrum, these fractures, they don't lie. These misalignments, they don't lie. The presence of these hypoplastic enamel defects, which have been proven, scientifically proven to be indicators of childhood stress, they do not lie. So no matter how much you may not like the truth, no matter how much you may disagree with it, these skeletons, they don't lie. And my thing is my research, it's not up for interpretation about how these things happen. I'm I'm not super interested in how this fracture happened, because again, there's bias in nature and understanding that you don't have all of the information. All I can tell you is what the skeletons tell me. And the skeletons tell me that these individuals went through childhood stress and based on the healing process, the proximity of that injury to their death. If the fracture is not completely realigned and healed at time of death, they didn't even make it that long past the injury Mm
0: -hmm. to
2: be able to fulfill their livelihood. And the misalignment tells me, no matter where I stand, no no matter where my biases are, the misalignment in the skeletal fractures tells me, based on clinical research, no care, no pain management, no rest, no access to resources that would help mitigate this misalignment. So that way, I, I'm i not saying that I escape myself from all biases and you know, research is not like this completely empirical, flawless entity, but as much as I can, I would like to remove any form of bias interpretation of the skeletal fractures and let them speak for themselves.
1: So that we know we can be like, I don't like what you said. I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We should take your research and uh, send it to Florida. Man, oh,
0: <laughs> they're just li- to they claim it like was aliens.
2: One hundred percent, or that you know we benefited from it. They're going to be like, but I mean, look at they've made it. You're into stronger now. Research. <laughs> look at what we did.
1: <laughs> you know, we did that. <laughs> okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it, uh, I mean, um, what was I
0: going to say? It's too early.
1: I had a comment about uh, earlier, but now I can't get it out of my head, so. Um, you're good. It's not even 9 o'clock yet. It is not even 9 o'clock yet. It's not even 9 o'clock. On a Sunday. I know, Kendra. Why are you come having us on here at 8 a.m.? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm I have sorry. things to do today, so.
2: Right. Fine. I was like, I heard y'all have lives. I don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm uh,
1: um... I mean, I don't, I don't have too much more to say. Um, I know I mean, you asked about like the method, like the collection.
2: When we talked, you and I, actually.
1: Yeah. I about... probably did, but I don't remember what I asked. So um, I, I write things down and I didn't write that down.
2: That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I
1: know that you were curious about,
2: like you were asking about the scoring system uh, and the collection method. And it's gonna change, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's it's gonna change. Um I will say that there have been revelations since doing my pilot study mm-hmm. and doing more research, uh, having done my comprehensive exams and having to and my prospectus and my NSF grant, which God accept, I mean, God uh turned in uh And so we're waiting to hear back from them, Um, but having to go through like the meat of like what my methods are gonna look like for the the actual dissertation research. Um, My scoring system changed. Uh, Dr. Palud helped me change that to keep it more consistent instead of having a score of one through three for certain things and a score of one through four for other things, I'm gonna keep it consistent with a score of one through three. Um, And then I will be doing, Instead of looking at the long bones only, um, I have to do full skeletal analyses, which I did the first time. Um, but I have to do the things that I don't like, which are hands and feet.
1: Nobody likes hands and feet. I hate
0: too many hands bones. And
1: feet is too many bones. I, but mean, I have that to. Would be interesting though, because I mean, we use our hands for everything, and if you're yeah. a laborer, then
0: yeah yeah i my uh my grandma always used to say as long as you have strong hands you'll have work so yeah uh, yeah that's an indicator right there that they're going to be incredibly important like you just said Ash, if they're a laborer there's going to be evidence there
1: I mean, well not just uh, uh Yes, say, i've never i've never really studied hands honestly i mean my research mainly just focus on teeth but um I'm wondering if, you know, like when you do a lot of labor and you're building that muscle, you have uh what, more uh prominent like um the muscle attachments, like I guess robot, more robust. Wouldn't that be the word? I'm, yeah. wondering, I'm wondering, do you also see that in the hands and the phalanges? <laughs> or
2: um per- personally, I've never seen it, but again, I don't like look at those. And also there's not a significant amount of muscle attachments in your hands in your yeah, that's what hands. I was thinking. I was like, where um, would that ad-
1: where would yeah, that even be at? But.
2: but one of the things that um I take into consideration is that if I'm going to tell their stories. I have to tell all their stories. So originally, my the, the healing and misalignment aspect that is going to focus exclusively on the upper and lower appendicular and the limbs, um, because those are the ones that would cause the greatest mobility concerns. So a person unable to use one of their legs, a person unable to use one of their arms is going to significantly impact their ability to do their job, to live their life, to be comfortable. Um, but the hands are going to come into play because on the other poster, as you showed before, there was a significant discrepancy between the number of skeletal fractures of African-American individuals and white individuals, as Ashley pointed out. But on if you were to go lower on there, um, I think 86%, if I'm not mistaken, 86% of those skeletal fractures on the white individuals were just, was it 86%? Um, were just rib fractures, right? So white individuals exhibited 101 rib fractures, mm-hmm. whereas African-American individuals only exhibited 33. So I was wondering why mm-hmm. that was the case. They fighting yeah. a lot? I don't they were, hand-to-hand <laughs> combat. Also the white individuals exhibited more nasal fractures than in the, face. the other, yeah. So they were fighting. each other for some reason that i don't know about but hand-to-hand combat was very common amongst these individuals and so when it comes to telling their stories when i'm having this discussion about the data and i'm looking at these anomalies um i'm looking at okay well why do you see exclusively rib fractures not not a lot of limb fractures but rib fractures in white individuals. What were they doing?
0: <laughs> so, and, and you know, um, I'm wondering if it doesn't have something to do with like early boxing.
1: That's what I'm wondering. Also, like if they are low class, they need money. If they're fighting just to make some quick like, cash, but that's that could just be hollywood Hollywood influence. It could be. It <laughs> or, could be. They're here. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh
0: it'd be interesting to find out like in in that is it the Jim Crow era and in the the area where they were where they were found if there was anything like that over there and if there may have been some kind of connection yeah we're just conjecture there so or they
1: needed really needed some social emotional workshops at that time (laughs) yeah and if i'm
2: not mistaken uh prohibition might have overlapped during this time so there was a lot of (laughs) alcohol consumption that could probably have led to a lot of like interpersonal Mm -hmm. violence um that is not stemmed not directly stemmed in some sort of Structural violence, systemic racism aspect. These are just like, you know, interpersonal interactions perhaps. Um, but with that being said, the reason why it's important is because I, I this time around when I go to collect my data, um, I will have to do full skeletal, uh assessments, including hands and feet, even though I don't want to. Um, including hands and feet. Um, the misalignment will be exclusively reserved for the upper and lower limbs, because then that does speak greater to the aspect of like mobility concerns and care. Um, but in this one, I did take into consideration as many skeletal fractures. I will say that I didn't see any skeletal fractures on the hands and feet. I did look, but I didn't see any. Um but I did take into consideration, like there was a person who looks like they had blunt force trauma to the skull. They had a fractured occipital. Um, and then, um yeah, a fractured occipital, there was a person with like a Fracture like orbitals, like they were like hit in the head. Um, and then we had the nasal fractures, and then we had these anomalous fractures, like the scapular fractures, the clavicle fractures. Um, we had a couple of like hip fractures. And so I'll be looking at all of the fractures, and then I'll be taking into consideration their demographic factors and how does, you know, do I see more hip fractures in the elderly versus, you know, in people who are 18 or 25 or something like that. Um, So yeah, but regardless, and still, even with the huge gap of fractures between African-American and white individuals, African-Americans still experience more misalignment, which speaks to the concerns of care and medical racism and access to resources. Um, And then to corroborate this information, I just did a lot, a lot of historical research and I had to understand the advent of Jim Crow and the ways in which it infiltrated all of the domains, particularly housing and healthcare. Um, And that really added complex layers to why this data looks the way it does. This is really cool. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work.
1: Also Makes I want f- to get back to school. <laughs> Do
2: it. Also I have a four-field approach uh mm-hmm. for uh, for all my dissertation research. I don't know if I told you but I have four field mm-hmm. representation. And oh my god.
1: <laughs> so um with the four-field approach how are you incorporating linguistics?
2: So uh there is going to be language that is considered. So okay. Like I said there's associated documentation. Right. There's associated documentation with every single individual in the Hamilton. One of the things that I noticed when I was looking at that is that all the individuals were the African-American individuals were labeled Negro,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, which at the time was an appropriate term. um, And then their descriptions, you know, I think some of the terms were like pygmy or something like that. And so the reason why that's important is because language does have an impact on how people interact and perceive other individuals and so i'll be looking at the associated documentations and files with these individuals to see how the language was dispersed and to see how that is see if that impacts the outcome that i see in terms of the skeletal um analysis and The reason why it's important is because when you consider medical racism in today's society, you hear things like the patient is being uncooperative. Well, is that patient being uncooperative or does that patient come from a culture where your specific prescription of medical treatment doesn't align with their cultural norms? So categorizing them as uncooperative could perceive could impact how they are perceived by their specialist their specialists might have implicit biases reading their medical file and expecting a combative patient coming in which could impact the treatment and again these are arbitrary things that are impacting human biology the words that you use to describe a person whom you are not familiar with can and has, and will impact the medical treatment that they receive.
1: It's hard. Uh, taking the language and going back to occupation, which I know you couldn't really define uh, for everybody, but it made me think about um, growing up. I was always told my great grandfather who came from the Philippines um that he was a chef or a cook and I think somebody in the family has a photo of him like what looks like a cook's outfit and he might be holding a plate this could just be my memory like playing tricks on me um but when I was doing my ancestry um I think it had him written down as like a house servant or something mm-hmm. so I mean when we look at these people and it says laborer well what does that really mean mm-hmm.
2: and what um, does that entail mm-hmm yeah, because it could mean
1: anything. Yeah, I mean, a house servant could. I mean, there's a difference between someone who folds laundry and somebody who is cooking dinner.
2: Oh uh, yeah, a full course meal three mm-hmm. times a day. The the physical demands, all of those mm-hmm. things. Um, so yeah, language is very important. Um, I'm still navigating the murky waters of collecting linguistic data because linguistics is not my strong point. Um, I also had a conversation with one of my committee members, and they told me that it was perfectly acceptable if you lean into one subfield or a couple of other subfields more than you lean into uh, into the others and so um I probably will not lean into my linguistics data as much but it's not something that I can negate in you know recounting these experiences of these individuals and life course reconstruction and things like that Um, but yeah four-field approach is a task
1: sounds like it it is a lot of work. <laughs> I did not have good experience when I took linguistics. So after that first class, I just completely avoided it altogether.
0: <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
1: That's fair. That's fair. Um, I actually really appreciated it.
2: One of the things that I appreciate about anthropology, and I know that the European style of anthropology is way different, but here in the United States, one of the things that I appreciate is the fact that um, they hone in on the four-field approach and how reliant and dependent they are on the other so i thought that i wasn't going to enjoy linguistics i thought that this was never going to apply to anything that is important to me but it does a language is extremely important it's the main form of communication amongst one another and then there are different versions of said you know language and English speaking and dialects and in inflections and things like that and in my linguistics class we talked about we had a section on AAVE which as an African-American person is very important to me and you realize you know that these things they're not done on accident like our language and everything the ways we communicate and things that we have going on are like strategically put in place and it's just it is Fascinating. I think that's why I like the discipline of anthropology because it never fails to blow my mind. I'm like, huh, really? I know for a lot of people it's just a field, but for me, anthropology is a way of life. It has impacted the way I interact with people. It has in- it has impacted the way I interact with people from different cultural backgrounds, from different political views, from different social backgrounds it has um, anthropology has given me grace in a lot of ways and i think for that i am eternally grateful to the discipline in general because anthropology will teach you grace and anthropology will teach you that it's not wrong it's just different in a lot of ways and i think that it allowed me to have grace as it pertains to politics because when um when the mm-hmm. political shift happened in 2016. I was at UCR and uh, it was a somber day when our president before the last, before this one was elected. And I became very angry and defensive and don't get me wrong, it doesn't negate the horrid views of, you know, People who are uh, on the other end of the political spectrum. But for like the minorities of the group and for the people who live in like the Corn Belt, I look at them from an anthropological perspective and I go, this is their environment. This is their environment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, to some degree, it is personal accountability to want to learn more. But then you see people who live in the middle of actual nowhere with like nobody for miles and had probably never interacted with a person of color. And it's like, you know, I don't have to agree, but I don't have to be so angry. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Like this is who they are. It's all their environment. Mm -hmm. It is all perspective. This is who Mm -hmm. they are. This is their upbringing. And there are aspects of this world that I have not encountered that would take me aback. And so for them, that is what they, that is what it does. It takes them aback. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, they're not used to this okay doesn't yeah. mean i agree with it but it 100 changes how i approach it and the energy that i put into it and as an anthropologist i step back and mm. i put on my anthropology hat and i go this is their cultural like, norm.
0: okay yeah okay yeah, excuse me <laughs> no i think you're absolutely right i think part of the reason that we as anthropologists we have that kind of we have a wider perspective because we're exposed to so many other cultures in our you know day-to-day research and other things like that just we see things that from well i mean i just to name a you know a couple of things like reading one of my first experiences reading an anthro textbook talked about cultural practices of um uh genital mutilation in another country which i'm not going to name and i'm like Like, what in the world are we, what what is, what is this? What's going on here? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That seems cruel, but it's also kind of, you know, like, okay, so clearly I don't understand that. Now, the next paper that I read was, and uh, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but it was actually... N- america or something like that it was basically america backward it was oh, an anthrop- yeah uh, you probably read that yeah. one. um Nasarima. Amer- yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's
2: nasurima yeah
0: america described from an exotic perspective and it's like oh my what in the world are they talking about this again sounds cruel and then we look at it from you know the perspective of hey this is this is just america this is where you live it's like whoa hold on yeah everything shifts right? yeah 100
2: 100 and then you also realize that like for us anthropology especially american anthropology um it is very western based and eurocentric and it's very easy for western anthropologists to other like other people in other countries you know mm-hmm. they're they're doing it differently there's this it's, there's this exoticism and this like you know anomalous mm-hmm. way of like how they live their lives and the fascinating part about this is that other countries look at us and they do the same thing and they're just like they're like there are some people who will be like you know I know that as an anthropologist me personally we've moved away from this term but I hear that it's being used a lot most recently in the political sphere of the United States but people look at the United States and they consider us the third world country (laughs) and I'm like
0: You know what's funny? Um, I met somebody from Ireland who came over here with a um a Ph or not a PhD, but a master's degree in um in the medical field. Can't remember exactly which, but um she was like, Is the water safe to drink here? And I'm just (laughs) like I'm like, Well, I've been drinking it all my life, so it's safe for me. (laughs) You know,
1: bottled. But we do the same thing when we go to other countries because how many countries have you been to? Well, I have been to where you can't drink the water. So when I go, even when I was in Poland, I was like, this isn't a third world country, but I'm still like, is it okay to drink the water here? Like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Because that's, really... that's
1: that's a valid question when you're yeah. traveling.
0: Yeah. <laughs> she was like, I heard they put chlorine in your water and they put all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, I mean, I know they put (laughs) chlorine and they at the water treatment plants, they definitely put chlorine in the water and so on. But I'm pretty sure most of that's filtered. (laughs) yeah <laughs> no, i don't know
1: no, yeah You're no. like, i haven't died yet haven't exactly died. hey
0: i'm no. still alive I'm <laughs> yeah striving.
2: you know we're living our best lives as much as we mm-hmm. can yeah um but yeah it definitely weighs my level and respect for anthropology in the direction that it's going now um very high i had to do mm-hmm. the research on the where it came from and i was like we're the problem we, <laughs> we we as anthropologists the discipline
0: we can we, be we, yeah.
2: we started the problem it, it, it oh
0: yeah absolutely we literally. we
2: started we we literally
0: <laughs> see the crazy
2: racism <laughs> <thing>,
0: <sighs> the crazy the crazy thing is this whole perspective shift that we're talking about anthropology as a discipline went through the same thing it just looked back at itself it was like wait a minute what was i just doing and mm-hmm. now we're trying to make up for it so yes kind yeah of a- we, yeah. we
2: started the problem and now we're, we're stuck with the problem. And now mm-hmm. we have to use the same. I talked about it in my comprehensive exams. I was like the irony of mm-hmm. us having to do work to fix a problem
1: that we started. But okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Once again, we're talking to Kendra Isabel from the University of Nevada, Nevada, Reno. Thank you, Kendra, again, for coming on the show. And for those of you who are watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.